Here at Doxedo Hatfield, we are a family on mission. Make sure to get connected by joining us at one of our Sunday services. We hope you enjoyed today's message. Brilliant. Well, good morning. If you can open your Bible with me, that'd be great, to the book of Daniel. We can have all the lights on if that's okay. Uh, I want to be able to see your Bible in your own Bible, in your own scroll, in your own phone, the holy app that you have on that device. So I'm going to jump right in because we've got some ground to cover this morning, and this morning's going to be more teaching than preaching. So please indulge me. I want your heart to be full of many things to go and consider and apply, and in our community groups, we're going to break those things apart and bring them down to our level. So we're going to change gears this morning. If you've been on the journey with us in the series called Daniel Thriving in Babylon, the first two weeks, we settled two big issues, or at least we started conversations about them. The first thing is that when you find yourself in a Babylon-like hell of emotion or a situation or a person or a place or a workspace, hopefully not your spouse, but some space like that, a Babylon-like moment in your life, we settled that at the very least, I can know that I know that I know that even in those broken and hurting moments, God is still good. And he is still sovereignly at work. I can entrust an unknown future to a known God, we said, right? And then secondly, last week, we spoke about the fact that in those difficult moments, in those Babylon-like seasons, God will still use those moments and seasons and people and jobs and workspaces to do great things in me. He will use those moments to grow my character, to change me, to transform me more and more into his image. He will do a great work in me. But for the next three weeks, as we finish off this series, we're going to change gears by looking at the fact that God does not only want to do great things in my heart and in my life, but in the Babylon that I find myself in, he is going to use that to do great things through me as well. Guys, here's the truth that you will find all throughout this story in Jeremiah. God, most of the time, is not planning to take you out of Babylon. <laughs> no, He is going to change Babylon through you. He is not going to remove us most of the time from this world or this city or this situation or that marriage or that workspace. I believe most of the time, many of the times, he is going to will to work, change, and transformation through us. And so we're going to see in these next three weeks that in Daniel, we see a humility, a hope, and a wisdom that God used as conduits to bring his good news, his change, his kingdom into even a hellhole like Babylon. And so today we start with Daniel's humility. Now, I know, especially for the men, when I say that, almost immediately, like you're, you're almost like, oh, I'm disengaging. We're speaking about humility today. <laughs> and humility, let's be honest now, if you like stop being all religious church-like this morning, we will agree that humility is one of those things we all think we probably should pursue, but no one actually genuinely wants. Isn't it true? Like, I think especially men don't regard humility very highly. I don't, I've never met a husband or maybe a father in our city who says, the one thing that I want for my son is humility. You know, I've never seen that. When we speak about, you know, eating humble pie, that's accepting humiliation. That's a bad thing. When we speak about coming from humble beginnings or you live in a humble uh, in your home or a boat, all those things are in the negative. No one wants necessarily humility. And therefore, especially men, once again, very few walk down that that path. And I think we associate, and maybe three things really quickly, I think we think that humility is maintaining low self-esteem. I think nothing of myself. I'm the worm. I'm worthless. I'm useless. That's, that's humility. Or secondly, maybe having a lack of ambition. 
I don't dream big. I don't run hard after things. I don't achieve. I don't compete. I don't pursue. That's humility. Or maybe thirdly, we think it's downplaying your accomplishments. I don't take any joy in success, and I run away from the spotlight. That's a humble person. <laughs> and therefore, everyone's like, I don't want to be a humble person. Men's like, I don't want to be a, you know, an ambition-lacking, achievement-resisting, meek, timid kind of weak person. That's not who I want to be. Can I submit to you this morning, as we're going to see, that biblical humility has absolutely nothing to do with those things. Because those things, unlike biblical humility that has to do with spiritual maturity, those things have to do with emotional insecurity. It's two completely different things. The kind of humility that God worked in the heart and the character and the spine, I would say, of Daniel, the kind of humility he wants to instill in us, is much more a verb-like posture. It does stuff. It actions things it changes it challenges it transforms it influences it challenges and consoles it influences and heals it inspires and cures that is humility that is what god calls us to and so this morning just under three headings can we just ask the question about daniel the humility that god worked in his heart can we ask about the the outcome of daniel's humility what did it actually do the origin, where does it come from? And finally, the outline. How can we have a game plan for this kind of humility in your workspace, in your family, in your marriage, between your friends, where you work and play in Pretoria? How will humility transform our city? The outcome of Daniel's humility. What did it actually accomplish? Can I ask you, very honestly this morning, if you are a Christ follower here, is there someone in your life that you genuinely desire that God would bring them into his family, into his kingdom? Do you have a person? And it's definitely, it's the very opposite of a judgmental thing. It's a heart desire thing of God, this person more than anyone else in my life, I so want you to come and change them, transform them, make them anew. Maybe it's your dad. Maybe it's a good friend. Maybe it's your neighbor. Maybe it's a colleague. And can I tell you that honestly, throughout my life, those key people that have been so deeply impressed upon my heart, I've often come to a place where if I'm honest in prayer before God, if I'm just Psalm-like, you know, all these Psalms of lament just opening up my heart to God, I'm just saying, God, I don't think I have the faith anymore for this person to find you, for this person to be found by you, for this person to allow you to transform them. I've lost my hope in that. I know none of you guys are ever there, but that's where I am sometimes. Now, I want to show you Exhibit A, someone whom no one at the time would have thought God is able to influence. Daniel 1 verse 1, read with me. We did this a couple of weeks ago, but I just want to retread this quickly. It says, the book starts, In the third year of the reign of King Jehoiakim of Judah, it's God's people, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came to Jerusalem and laid siege to it. Nebuchadnezzar carried them to the land of Babylon, to the house of his God, and put the vessels in the treasury of his God. Verse 18, at the end of that time, the king said to present them, the chief eunuch, speaking about Daniel's friends, presented them to King Nebuchadnezzar. Verse 19, the king interviewed them, and among all of them, no one was found equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they began to attend the king. They began... To attend the king. We do not have the reference to understand how absolutely bizarre this is. 
These men and their people have just been brutalized by the most powerful empire on the face of the earth at that stage. Their empire stretched further than probably any other empire at that stage had. One of the ancient wonders of the world, the Hanging Gardens, is found in this king's own city. He is the most affluent, the most powerful. He is the most scary person alive at that time of day. Because what we know from history and from the Bible is he is not just powerful and affluent. He is not just the richest and the most conquering presence in the world. He's also a vindictive, evil, short-tempered, cruel man. So imagine taking Bill Gates and Donald Trump and Adolf Hitler and putting them all together in one person. We have something of an idea of who this man is. And he conquers and brutalizes these poor little Israelite people and he kidnaps them and takes them to his people. They are slaves in his empire. And it says God comes in the middle of this Babylon, this absolute disaster of a situation. And he says, I will set it up so that you four will attend the king himself. I will bring you within earshot, influence, sphere of this tyrant. Is there someone that you think in your life God is not able to reach out to? Is there someone, maybe making it more personal, that God is not able to work into their lives through your life? (laughs) Because that's what we see here. Now, I want to give us just a 50,000-foot view of this this morning. I can't go through this whole thing because then we'd have to preach through the whole book, which I know you would love after about four hours and we'd still be going. But I want to just to show you the progression of King Nebuchadnezzar's understanding of God. This is incredible. How this man is changed, he's, he's controlled in by God and saying, I want to influence you. I want you in my kingdom. Now listen to this. Firstly, we see that he starts to get intrigued by the faith of Daniel and his friends. Verse 1 of chapter 2, it's the second movement in this book. It says, in the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams that troubled him and sleep deserted him. And so he calls all of these you know, wise men and magicians and all these guys, and he says, I need you to help me with this. I'm very distressed. I'm not going to tell you the dream. You have to tell me both my dream and the interpretation of my dream. And if you don't do that, I'll tear you limb from limb. That's the deal. So he's a very gracious man, obviously. And so they say in verse 11, what the king is asking, because they're just normal people, is so difficult that no one can make it known to him except the gods whose dwelling is not with mortals. Keep that in just a feather in your mind for later. Verse 12, because of this, the king became violently angry and gave orders to destroy all the wise men of Babylon. So it's a bit of an overreaction. I'm not going to tell you my dream or the interpretation. You give me both. If you can't, I'm killing all of you. And so this news reaches Daniel and his friends, and obviously they are distressed. They don't have influence in this space. They are these captives. So they go to God in prayer, and they say, God, please give us this dream and this interpretation. So many lives, including ours, is at stake here. And so he goes to this king, and he gives him this interpretation, and it floors the king. This man who's always gotten exactly what he wants, when he wants it, he brutalizes who and what he wants at any time that he wants, he is floored. By these Israelites giving him this interpretation. And listen to his response. Daniel 2 verse 47. Listen to how things are changing internally. Verse 47. Your God is indeed God of gods, Lord of kings, and a revealer of mysteries. Since you were able to reveal this mystery, 
Then the king promoted Daniel and gave him many generous gifts. He made him ruler over the entire province of Babylon and chief governor over all the wise men of the empire. He is not saying, I believe in your God yet. No, this God is still very distant. This God is able to, from a distance, interpret these dreams. He's got, as a Babylonian, a pantheon of gods that he serves. So it's almost like he's slowly putting the God, the God of Israel, the God of the Bible, the God that I serve in Jesus Christ. It's almost like he's putting him slowly into his cupboard of many gods. And he says, wow, this is impressive. I'm intrigued. I've never seen a God like this. And maybe this God has something to offer me. He's slowly being moved closer. So next phase of the story, in chapter 3, we see a next season, months pass, seasons pass, and this king is in a moment of his life where he feels, I want to draw the, the attention of my kingdom around one thing. And what does he make that one thing? Himself, of course, because that's the kind of guy that he is. So he has a 3 by 30 meter gold statue erected of himself, and then he says, I want everyone in the kingdom to come together and come and bow down before this statue. And now Daniel is not part of this portion of the narrative. He's probably away on official business, but his three friends are there. And as the story goes, they decide, no, we can't do that. We serve one God and one God only. We bow before one God. And this so angers this pagan king. Can you imagine the most powerful man in the empire being so stood up by these three nothings in his kingdom? And so he says, fine, then I will kill you. And so they have this furnace lit. Even the people chucking them into the furnace die because of its heat. And he chucks them in their bound so that they would fry. And what happens? Again, the king is floored by what he sees. Never in all of his life of pillaging and killing has this happened. See, the three friends are not just not dead. They are very much alive. They are thriving quite literally in Babylon at that moment, because they are unscathed in the fire, and there's this fourth figure standing next to them. And listen again, listen to the progression in this man's heart. Listen to what he says, Daniel 3.28. Nebuchadnezzar exclaimed, praise to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He sent his angel and rescued his servants who trusted in him. They violated the king's command and risked their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I issue a decree. Now we can see he's not completely changed just yet. That anyone of any people, nation or language who says anything offensive against the God of Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. So you can still see the distance. They will be torn limb from limb and his house made a garbage dump. For there is no other God who is able to deliver like this. So that's a, that's a unique way of kind of expressing your gratitude toward this God. Is you know, now everyone worship this God. And if you don't do that, I'll burn your house to the ground and tear you limb from limb. So... There's still work to be done. He's a rough diamond. I do not, I do not you know, try and go against that idea. But do you see the change? This God was at one stage in his mind the far away interpreting God. Now this God becomes the one who actually stands right next to his own people. He inserts himself into the very danger that he, his people find themselves in. This God is not far off and uninterested and and uninvolved. No, this God apparently is quite intimately connected to his people. He's being drawn further and further. And so the final movement of this journey, in chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar, now speaking in the first person, he writes this portion of the narrative. And he has another dream, many seasons later. And this dream frightens him much more than the first. Because in this dream, he sees this massive tree, this tree that stretches to the ends of the nations. But this messenger from God comes and he chops down this tree to its very stump. There's nothing left of it. 
And this same representation now it moves over into this other picture of a man who suddenly descends into madness. His mind leaves him. I mean, he becomes almost animal-like. He goes into the field and he acts and he, and he lives like an animal. And he's so disturbed by this dream. What does this mean? And so what? Daniel steps onto the scene again. And with that humble confidence... He engages the king. And can you imagine this? Standing and saying these words. He says to the king, to his face, I think that God is calling you to repent of your ways. <laughs> this is many years of engagement, serving, being attentive to the king. He finally has the moment of wisdom, but in a humble posture, he comes and he says, I think God is calling you to turn your life around. I think he's calling you to serve your people justly. I think he's calling you to make things right as you have brutalized everyone in your path. If not, these things will come to pass in your dream. And exactly as Daniel says, one year from this prophecy, this king goes mad. He loses his mind. And for seven seasons, it says, he's in the fields and he's animal-like. He descends into some kind of psychosis and he's completely outside of himself. And he wrestles with God. This is a man who says, no, I am the captain of my soul. I don't need the gods in that sense. I have it together. I can make it work. I can figure it out with enough money and influence and violence. I can make this work. He wrestles with God. And eventually at the end of these seven seasons, there is a moment of release when this man finally turns his heart to God. And listen to what it says here. This is him writing. He says, at the end of those days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, looked up to heaven. He looked up to heaven. When I read that the first time, I thought of the end of my grade 11 year, not being in church for most of my life, at times doing many religious things, being very, very, very religious and naughty in the background all the time, trying to fool myself into thinking I'm a good person, doing good things. And this one evening at a camp, after so many times at camps, putting up my hand and doing things for the first time in my life, I came to the end of myself and I looked up to heaven and I said, Jesus, I need you. Jesus, I'm in desperate need of you. He looks up to heaven and it says, and my sanity returned to me. Now listen to this. Then I, King Nebuchadnezzar, praised the Most High. He's using the title that Daniel chose for God. At one stage, all throughout this narrative, Nebuchadnezzar speaks of God as just a spirit of the holy gods. He's just, he's just one of them. But now he says, now I look to heaven and I praise the most high and honored and glorified him who lives forever. Verse 37, now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt, and glorify the king of heaven. Because all his works are true and his ways are just. And listen to this bombshell that it ends with. This is the last words from Nebuchadnezzar in this whole story. He is able... To humble those who walk in pride. These are the last words penned by the king himself. This God is able to humble those who walk in pride. If you ask me, what is the outcome, the effect, the result of Daniel's humble confidence in what he's been called to? It's that even the, you know, the, the ruler, the man that no one would have faith for, the most prideful and arrogant and you know, evil, vindictive man in the kingdom comes to a place where he realizes this God is not just any God, he's the God. And I look to heaven 
to worship and serve Him. Truly humble worship and service and mission leads to other hearts being humbled before God. It's because of the prayers and the friendship. It's because of the influence and the calling and the constant coffees that I came to a place in my life where I humbled myself before God. Can I ask you again, is there someone in your life? And I, this, I keep having this thing in my heart of the dads. Some of us have fathers who do not serve Jesus. And we've lost hope because the pride and the arrogance and the self, you know, I can make this work. The captains of my own soul thing in their hearts. It's just, it's getting us under. And God is calling us again this morning to say, do you know what I can do through you? through my church, humbled hearts will lead to more hearts being humbled before this glorious king. You know, I think of two men in my life who I had no faith for. The one is a good friend of mine, her dad, and we've known each other for many, many, many years. And her dad, he's an ultra successful businessman in the free state. He is a difficult guy. He's a hard drinking, he is a uh, uh, one of those people who every word that comes out of his mouth is just poisonous to those people around him. I've had such embarrassing moments, just humiliating me in front of his friends when we've been over there. He is not someone that I wanted to ever spend time with. He had no, no love for the church or for God. And just a couple of years ago, after knowing each other, probably for 10 years, in our church, God comes and he reaches into this man's heart. And I'll never forget one of the first things that happened. He had for many years of his life, he had very, very, uh, you know, discreetly just cheated, I guess, SARS out of most of his income tax. Just working through all the loopholes, making sure that he can keep as much for himself. And the moment that God reached into his life, one of the first things he did is he went to the South African Revenue Service. And he said to them, I know that I should probably go to jail for what I've done, but I want to make right where I have wronged. And I heard that story over a voice note, and I thought, this is impossible. It co- this is like, this is, is it April Fool's? This is impossible. That man. But God says, I can humble those who walk in pride. Pride of religion, pride of sexuality, pride of own intellect, pride of whatever it is. He says, pride of your own brokenness, pride of the fact that you can make it work. God says, come to me. I will humble you. I think of one of my good friends. I've known him since grade one. He said, you're older than me. His brothers, you're younger than me. They were like family to me all throughout growing I, I spent weeks at a time there, sleeping over during holiday times. We were like brothers. I just got two older sisters, so they were my brothers. But the, the older one of the two, he was a difficult guy, unashamed womanizer. He was very, very cruel relationally to the people around him. He would cut you off relationally just for the slightest little dink that happened between you. And I'll never forget in our university years, I'd known him by this stage probably 14 years of my life. In our church, God comes and he reaches into this guy's life. He transforms him forever. And you can ask Shay, the first time we had never drank coffee. We're not, we didn't have like a coffee drinking kind of relationship. And he asked me, do I want to get some coffee with him? I thought, this is very strange. And as I'm sitting there, internally, my mouth is hanging open because I do not know this person. The things he's saying, the countenance, the joy, the sense of quiet strength suddenly in him, he was absolutely changed. 
And I ask myself, what can God do through humbled hearts? He will humble more hearts and draw them to himself. But here's my question to us. If that's the outcome, what is the origin of that kind of humility? What's the outcome of that kind of tempered strength? What's the, the, the origin of that kind of humble confidence that he had? Is it just because Daniel was a great guy? We should all just be like Daniel. You know, that's the point of a series. Just be a great guy like Daniel because Daniel was a great guy. I don't think that's the point. Let me give you a clue from what this book says about where Daniel's humility came from. Daniel 2 verse 19 says this. As he's asking God the first time for one of these interpretations of these dreams, he replies as he gets it. This mystery was then revealed to Daniel in a vision at night. And Daniel praised the God of the heavens and declared, May the name of God be praised forever and ever. For wisdom and power belong to him. He changes the times and seasons. He removes kings and establishes them. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals the deep and hidden things. He knows what's in the darkness and light dwells with him. I offer thanks and praise to you, God of my fathers, because you have given me wisdom and power. Do you see a pattern forming there? Daniel had a deep-rooted humility, a, a humble confidence, a tempered strength in him because he knew who God was and because of that he knew who he was. It's that simple. When I acknowledge God for who he is and start looking at myself through his eyes, everything changes. Can I show you the most profound version of this thought? It's all throughout the Bible in a very short little verse in James 4 verse 10. It simply says this, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. You Now, I've put it on the screen for you. There are two very strange words in one sentence. Because our English word humble comes from a Latin word which means low or ground. To be humbled is to be brought low. It's like in The King and I, that old movie, where the king says everyone has to be lower than him. And he plays this game with him. He goes lower and lower. And eventually, everyone's like on the floor with their faces. I can't be as high as the king. You are humbled when you are brought low to the ground. And yet, God says, those who humble themselves before me will what? Be exalted. And that Latin English word means upward or high. God says, true humility is the posture of my heart when I am perfectly in tension with the truth of God. The opinion of God keeps me in perfect tension. When I look at God, His majesty, His greatness, His power, His truth, it overwhelms me. The Bible even speaks about it's almost like fear enters into my heart. This being is too much to comprehend. I feel like I'm bringing low to the ground. I'm being humbled just by who He is. If He were to appear in full majesty here this morning, we would be fried. Literally, this, this whole venue would melt in the presence of God. I'm humbled, but at the very same time, what does that God say about me? He says, I will bring you to exactly where you should be. You don't have to fly high with all your self-exalting pride. You don't have to lie on the floor with the self-hating, groveling, I'm the worm. No, you are exactly where you should be in me. Listen to how Psalm 8 puts this, verse 3. When I observe your heavens, O God, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you set in place, it's too much. I can't imagine a being like this. I'm humbled. 
What is a human being that you would remember him? That's that feeling. I'm low to the ground. A son of man that you would look after him. And yet, listen to what the psalmist says. He says, yet you made him a little less than God and crowned him with glory and honor. You made him ruler over the works of your hands. You put everything under his feet. God says, I don't want to humiliate you. I don't want to set you up for failure by exalting you beyond what you are. You are a son of God. You're a daughter of God. Nothing more, nothing less. You are not this self-sovereign ruler. You are not this pitiful worm. You are the son and daughter of God. When you are truly humbled before me, when I look to God and I agree with what he says about himself, and then I start looking at my life and agree with what he says about me, I find myself in perfect, humble tension. I've got this this calm strength within me. You know, I love in the movie Gladiator, in that opening scene, we see Maximus, Russell Crowe's character, riding in before they're going to take on the barbarians. And I think something that's so profound, he walks in between his soldiers. These are hardened men. And he doesn't ask for it. He doesn't order it. But just out of instinct, they get down on their knees and they show respect to him. He doesn't ask for it. He doesn't force it upon them. And it's so amazing. They don't go and lie on their faces. Oh, we are not worthy, Maximus. I feel so bad. They don't walk around with their chest puffed out. No, man, why are you the center of attention? I want to be. No, no, they just get on their knees exactly where respect takes them. It's something that was earned in their hearts. God says, when you come into relationship with me, when the conviction about who I am dawns upon you, you will neither be flattened on the ground nor raised up like Icarus to, you know, to burn in the sun. You will be put exactly where you should be. You are the confidently humble, strong and silent, deadly and passionate son and daughter of God for my kingdom. Can I, just because time is against me this morning, I'm going to skip that last one, but I just, want, I just want you to read this and just listen with me this morning. John Reinhardt, writing for Desiring God, He has an article that I want you to go and read at your own pace. It simply says, what God thinks about you. What God thinks about you. I just want to read to you because he has all these scriptures just thrown in the middle. To see this is the conviction that should dawn on me. That creates a humble posture in my heart. A strong confidence in my heart. He says things like, I'm the creator and you are my creation. I created you in my own image. My my eyes saw you. Your unformed substance. I knit you together in your mother's womb. I knew the number of hairs on your head. And before a word is on your tongue, I know it. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. You are more valuable than many sparrows. I've given you dominion. I've crowned you with glory and honor as the pinnacle and final act of my creation. Now, everyone who calls on the name of Jesus will be saved. You who believed are born again. I've adopted you. You are children of God, heirs of God. You are no longer orphans. You belong to me. And I love you as a perfect father. You've been saved by grace. You've been justified by faith. You are utterly secure in me. Nothing will be able to separate you from the love in Christ Jesus. No one is able to snatch you out of my hand. And I will never leave you nor forsake you. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill. I've called you. I've chosen you. You are now a saint, a servant, a steward, and a soldier. You are a witness and a worker. Through Jesus, you are victorious. You're a citizen of heaven. You're an ambassador for my son. You have a glorious future, humbly at peace about who I am. 
Because God is who he says he is. Therefore, I am nothing more and nothing less than what he says about me. How can I confidently engage the world out there? It's when I have that humble strength in me. So can we end off this morning? This was the last thought. What would, a, what would a game plan then look like for us to engage some of the people, places, some of the friends, colleagues, maybe the dads, that we know God wants to do the same thing in their hearts? Just three statements that I want you to take away this morning. Number one, true biblical humility will lead to me thinking this. I then earn influence by being ambitiously excellent for God. If you think humility means I'm not ambitious, I don't pursue, I don't run, I don't achieve, you've got it all wrong. God says ambitiously excellent is what I want you to be. In your work, in your house, in the streets here, but do it for me. Because when I work for the glory of God, I'm not made or broken by the spotlight. I don't mind the spotlight, but I don't need the spotlight either. Because God tells me what my worth is. I can be at the very top of my organization and not be made or broken by it. I'm not at, you know, at a, a place of unease or fear or intimidation with anyone who moves into my sphere because God tells me who I am. I can pursue excellent ambition in God. That's what we see in Daniel. Daniel never for a second stood back. Daniel engaged in every single moment that he had the opportunity to do so, and he did it in such an excellent way that God said, I'm putting you over more and more and more. I'm putting you into a high place. But Daniel, every time that happened, would say, it's glory to God. It is because of God that this has taken place. The other day I sit in a, in a meeting with a bunch of businessmen, and one of our Doxadeo partners from Ferry Glen campus, Bosov Grobler, he is the CEO of one of the biggest investment companies in our country, Ashburton Investments. And he stands there, and he holds this crowd literally. They are hanging at his lips as he's speaking, because he has earned his keep amongst their ranks. And the very first thing he says is he just oozes who the king and savior of his life is. He is a man who is excellent and ambitious, but he is humbly dependent on his God. If we think the Christians are those who, who take more time off, who kind of skim away from work, who come late and leave early, we've got it so wrong. In my family, in my work, I should be the first to be there, and the last to leave. I should be ambitiously excellent for God. Secondly, is I confidently engage people with a different worldview. If I know who I am in humble strength, I will confidently approach people with different worldviews. Daniel, in a, in a world that did not share, it's the very opposite of what he believes, he did not go and hide away on a mountaintop somewhere with the pandas. No, he engaged his culture, even though he did not agree with all of it. Friends, I think that for some reason we've gotten into our minds that God does not want us to be in the city. God wants us to be in the city, but not of this city. He says in Matthew 5, don't lose your saltiness, then you're just worth nothing. No, be in this city and be the light, be the salt that I've made you to be. I love how Paul, he writes to the Corinthian church, and he was trying to help them with something. Listen to what he says. He says, I wrote to you in a letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. And everyone's like, yes, that's what Christians say, these sexually immoral people. You know, these sexually immoral people in my work and in my family. And, you know, my sister, she's doing all these things. And I constantly tell them to get their life sorted out and, you know, stop swearing and stop sleeping around and stop drinking. Paul's like, well, guys, 
you missed, you completely missed what I was trying to say. He says, I did not mean the immoral people of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Otherwise, you would have to leave the world. If I'm going to be angry at the world for being like the world as I was of the world for most of my life, then get out of this world. (laughs) No, he says, but actually I wrote to you not to associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister and is sexually immoral or greedy or idolatry. He says, guess what? You know what we should do is if someone claims to be a Christian and then constantly lives like that, we should as good brothers and sisters engage one another. Good judgment happens in the church, not outside it. I want you to be the person who, like Jesus, confidently engages with a neighbor or a friend or a, or a colleague or a boss or a sister or a dad who does not share your convictions. Because it's through those relationships that I trust that they will be changed. That's how change happens. Don't be angry at the world for being the world. Let me be privileged that God has placed me in spaces of influence. And the last thing is I play with the long view in mind. If I have this humble spirit in me, humble confidence, humble strength, I play with the long view in mind. Daniel did not do these things because he thought it would pay off tomorrow. (laughs) In fact, it didn't. Daniel died in Babylon. Daniel served that king for the rest of his life. But Daniel knew that God had called him to do these things, not because it would pay off, because it's the right thing to do. Friends, if we live this way, it's not going to be in your favor tomorrow. It might never be in your favor. But God says, trust me that even in this season, I can work powerfully through you. Is there a person in your life like that? Is there a King Nebuchadnezzar-sized, I don't have faith for this anymore, God person? God says, trust me, work with me, follow me. Be obedient to me. Your humble heart will bring humble postures into theirs. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you this morning. And God, we want to take just a moment of response and just bring our city and our families and our marriages and our colleagues just before you once again. And God, not only do we not have judgment this morning, we have such a heart for them. And I pray, God, I pray with every person here this morning, by name, God, we want to pray for those people that do not yet know your glory and your love. God, we are expectant for those testimonies. And God, we just put up our hands again this morning to say that we will go out with excellent ambition. God, we will go out with intentional relationship and we will go out with a long view in mind, humbly confident that you have called us, not away from Babylon, but into it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.